0: Chapter 3 Parts 4 and 5 of War in the Air This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. War in the Air by H. G. Wells Chapter 3 Parts 4 and 5 That first downward plunge filled Bert with a haunting sense of boundless waters below. It was a summer's night, but it seemed to him, nevertheless, extraordinarily long. He had a feeling of insecurity that he fancied, quite irrationally, the sunrise would dispel. Also, he was hungry. He felt in the dark in the locker, put his fingers in the Roman pie, and got some sandwiches, and he also opened, rather successfully, a half-bottle of champagne— That warmed and restored him. He grumbled at grub about the matches, wrapped himself up warmly on the locker, and dozed for a time. He got up once or twice to make sure that he was still securely high above the sea. The first time the moonlit clouds were white and dense, and the shadow of the balloon ran athwart them like a dog that followed. Afterwards they seemed thinner. As he lay still, staring up at the huge dark balloon above, he made a discovery his or rather mr butteridge's waistcoat rustled as he breathed it was lined with papers but bert could not see to get them out or examine them much as he wished to do so he was awakened by the crowing of cocks the barking of dogs and a clamour of birds he was driving slowly at a low level over a broad land lit golden by sunrise under a clear sky He stared out upon hedgeless, well-cultivated fields intersected by roads, each lined with cable-bearing red poles. He had just passed over a compact, whitewashed village with a straight church tower and steep red-tiled roofs. A number of peasants, men and women, in shiny blouses and lumpish footwear, stood regarding him, arrested on their way to work. He was so low that the end of his rope was trailing. He stared out at these people. I wonder how you land, he thought. Suppose I order land? He found himself drifting down toward a monorail line, and hastily flung out two or three handfuls of ballast to clear it. Let me see. One might say just, uh, prenez. Wish I knew the French for take hold of the rope. I suppose they are French. He surveyed the country again. "'Might be Holland, or Luxembourg, or Lorraine, as far as I know. "'Wonder what those big affairs over there are. "'Some sort of kiln. "'Prosperous-looking country.' The respectability of the country's appearance awakened answering chords in his nature. "'Mike myself a bit ship-shaped first, he said. He resolved to rise a little and get rid of his wig, which now felt hot on his head, and so forth. He threw out a bag of ballast, and was astonished to find himself careering up through the air very rapidly. "'Blow!' said Mr. Smallways. "'I've overdone the ballast trick. Wonder when I shall get down again. "'Breakfast on board, anyhow.' He removed his cap and wig, for the air was warm, and an improvident impulse made him cast the latter object overboard. The stethoscope responded with a vigorous swing to monte, "'A blessed thing goes up if you only look overboard,' he remarked, and assailed the locker. He found, among other items, several tins of liquid cocoa, containing explicit directions for opening that he followed with minute care. He pierced the bottom with the key provided in the holes indicated, and forthwith the can grew from cold to hotter and hotter, until at last he could scarcely touch it and then he opened the can at the other end and there was his cocoa smoking without the use of match or flame of any sort it was an old invention but new to bert there was also ham and marmalade and bread so that he had a really very tolerable breakfast indeed then he took off his overcoat for the sunshine was now inclined to be hot and that reminded him of the rustling he had heard in the night he took off the waistcoat and examined it Al oh, butteridge won't like me unpicking this he hesitated and finally proceeded to unpick it he found the missing drawings of the lateral rotating planes on which the whole stability of the flying machine depended an observant angel would have seen bert sitting for a long time after this discovery in a state of intense meditation then at last he rose with an air of inspiration took mr butteridge's ripped demolished and ransacked waistcoat and hurled it from the balloon whence it fluttered down slowly and eddyingly until at last it came to rest with a contented flop upon the face of german tourist sleeping peacefully beside the hohenweg near Wildbad. also this sent the balloon higher and so into a position still more convenient for observation by our imaginary angel who would next have seen Mr. Smallways tear open his own jacket and waistcoat, remove his collar, open his shirt, thrust his hand into his bosom, and tear his heart out. Or, at least, if not his heart, some large, bright, scarlet object. If the observer, overcoming a thrill of celestial horror, had scrutinized this scarlet object more narrowly, one of Bert's most cherished secrets, one of his essential weaknesses, would have been laid bare. It was a red-flannel chest protector, one of those large quasi-hygienic objects that, with pills and medicines, take the place of beneficial relics and images among the Protestant peoples of Christendom. Always Bert wore this thing. It was his cherished delusion, based on the advice of a shilling fortune-teller at Margate, that he was weak in the lungs. He now proceeded to unbutton his fetish, to attack it with a penknife, and to thrust the new-found plans between the two layers of imitation Saxony flannel of which it was made. Then, with the help of Mr. Butteridge's small shaving-mirror and his folding canvas basin, he had readjusted his costume with the gravity of a man who has taken an irrevocable step in life, buttoned up his jacket, cast the white sheet of the desert dervish on one side washed temperately shaved resumed the big cap and the fur overcoat and much refreshed by these exercises surveyed the country below him it was indeed a spectacle of incredible magnificence if perhaps it was not so strange and magnificent as the sunlight cloudland of the previous day it was at any rate infinitely more interesting the air was at its utmost clearness and except to the south and southwest there was not a cloud in the sky the country was hilly with occasional fir plantations and bleak upland spaces but also with numerous farms and the hills were deeply intersected by the gorges of several winding rivers interrupted at intervals by the banked-up ponds and weirs of electrical generating wheels It was dotted with bright-looking, steep-roofed villages, and each showed a distinctive and interesting church beside its wireless telegraph steeple. Here and there were large chateaux and parks and white roads, and paths lined with red and white cable posts were extremely conspicuous in the landscape. There were walled enclosures like gardens and rickyards, and great roofs of barns and many electric dairy centres. The uplands were mottled with cattle at places he would see the track of one of the old railroads converted now to monorails dodging through tunnels and crossing embankments and a rushing hum would mark the passing of a train everything was extraordinarily clear as well as minute once or twice he saw guns and soldiers and was reminded of the stir of military preparations he had witnessed on the bank holiday in england but there was nothing to tell him that these military preparations were abnormal or to explain an occasional faint irregular firing of guns that drifted up to him wish i knew how to get down said bert ten thousand feet or so above it all and gave himself too much futile tugging at the red and white cords afterwards he made a sort of inventory of the provisions life in the high air was giving him an appalling appetite, and it seemed to him discreet at this stage to portion out his supply into rations, so far as he could see he might pass a week in the air. At first all the vast panorama below had been as silent as a painted picture, but as the day wore on and the gas diffused slowly from the balloon it sank earthward again, details increased, men became more visible, and he began to hear the whistle and moan of trains and cars, sounds of cattle, bugles and kettle drums, and presently even men's voices. And at last his guide rope was trailing again, and he found it possible to attempt a landing. Once or twice, as the rope dragged over cables, he found his hair erect with electricity, and once he had a slight shock, and sparks snapped about the car. He took these things among the chances of the voyage he had one idea now very clear in his mind and that was to drop the iron grapnel that hung from the ring from the first this attempt was unfortunate perhaps because the place for descent was ill chosen a balloon should come down in an empty open space and he chose a crowd he made his decision suddenly and without proper reflection As he trailed, Bert saw ahead of him one of the most attractive little towns in the world, a cluster of steep gables surmounted by a high church tower and diversified with trees, walled, and with a fine, large gateway opening out upon a tree-lined high road. All the wires and cables of the countryside converged upon it like guests to entertainment. It had a most homelike, uncomfortable quality, and it was made gayer by abundant flags along the road a quantity of peasant folk in big pair-wheeled carts and afoot were coming and going besides an occasional monorail car and at the car junction beneath the trees outside the town was a busy little fair of booths it seemed a warm human well-rooted and altogether delightful place to bert he came low over the tree-tops with his grapnel ready to throw and so anchor him a curious interested and interesting guest so his imagination figured it in the very middle of it all he thought of himself performing feats with the sign language and chance linguistics amidst a circle of admiring rustics and then the chapter of adverse accidents began the rope made itself unpopular long before the crowd had fully realized his advent over the trees An elderly and apparently intoxicated peasant, in a shiny black hat, and carrying a large crimson umbrella, caught sight of it first as it trailed past him, and was seized with a discreditable ambition to kill it. He pursued it, briskly, with unpleasant cries. It crossed the road obliquely, splashed into a pail of milk upon a stall, and slapped its milky tail athwart a motor-car load of factory girls halted outside the town gates. They screamed loudly people looked up and saw Bert making what he meant to be genial salutations, but what they considered, in view of the feminine outcry, to be insulting gestures. Then the car hit the roof of the gatehouse smartly, snapped a flagstaff, played a tune upon some telegraph wires, and sent a broken wire like a whiplash to do its share in accumulating unpopularity. Bert, by clutching convulsively, just escaped being pitched headlong. Two young soldiers and several peasants shouted things up to him "'and shook fists at him, and began to run in pursuit "'as he disappeared over the wall into the town. "'Admiring rustics, indeed.' "'The balloon leapt at once in the manner of balloons "'when part of their weight is released by touching down, "'with a sort of flippancy, and in another moment Bert was over a street "'crowded with peasants and soldiers that opened into a busy market-square the wave of unfriendliness pursued him. "'Grapnel!' said Bert, and then, with an afterthought, shouted, "'Tates! There you! I say, I say, Tates! Hang it!' The grapnel smashed down a steeply sloping roof, followed by an avalanche of broken tiles, jumped the street amidst shrieks and cries, and smashed into a plate-glass window with an immense and sickening impact the balloon rolled nauseatingly and the car pitched but the grapnel had not held it emerged at once bearing on one fluke with a ridiculous air of fastidious selection a small child's chair and pursued by a maddened shopman it lifted its catch swung about with an appearance of painful indecision amidst a roar of wrath and dropped it at last neatly and as if by inspiration over the head of a peasant woman in charge of an assortment of cabbages in the marketplace. everybody now was aware of the balloon everybody was either trying to dodge the grapnel or catch the trail rope with a pendulum-like swoop through the crowd that sent people flying right and left the grapnel came to earth again tried for and missed a stout gentleman in a blue suit and a straw hat, smacked away a trestle from under a stall of haberdashery, made a cyclist soldier in knickerbockers leap like a chamois, and secured itself uncertainly among the hind legs of a sheep, which made convulsive, ungenerous efforts to free itself, and was dragged into a position of rest against a stone cross in the middle of the place. The balloon pulled up with a jerk, In another moment a score of willing hands were tugging it earthward. At the same instant Bert became aware for the first time of a fresh breeze blowing about him. For some seconds he stood staggering in the car which now swayed sickeningly, surveying the exasperated crowd below him and trying to collect his mind. He was extraordinarily astonished at this run of mishaps. Were the people really so annoyed? Everyone seemed angry with him. No one seemed interested or amused by his arrival a disproportionate amount of the outcry had the flavour of imprecation and indeed a strong flavour of riot several greatly uniformed officials in cocked hats struggled in vain to control the crowd fists and sticks were shaken and when bert saw a man on the outskirts of the crowd run to a hay-cart and get a brightly pronged pitchfork and a blue-clad soldier unbuckle his belt his rising doubt whether this little town was after all such a good place for a landing became a certainty. He had clung to the fancy that they would make something of a hero of him. Now he knew that he was mistaken. He was perhaps ten feet above the people when he made his decision. His paralysis ceased. He leaped up on the seat, at an imminent risk of falling headlong, released the grapnel rope from the toggle that held it, sprang onto the trail rope, and disengaged that also. A hoarse shout of disgust greeted the descent of the grapnel rope, and the swift leap of the balloon, and something, he fancied afterwards it was a turnip, up whizzed by his head. The trail rope followed its fellow. The crowd seemed to jump away from him. With an immense and horrifying rustle, the balloon brushed against the telephone pole, and for a tense instant he anticipated either an electric explosion or a bursting of the oiled silk or both. But fortune was with him. In another second he was cowering in the bottom of the car, and released from the weight of the grapnel and the two ropes, rushing up once more through the air. For a time he remained crouching, and when at last he looked out again the little town was very small and travelling, with the rest of lower Germany, in a circular orbit round and round the car. Or at least it appeared to be doing that. When he got used to it he found this rotation of the balloon rather convenient. It saved moving about in the car part five late in the afternoon of a pleasant summer day in the year nineteen blank if one may borrow a mode of phrasing that once found favour with the readers of the late g p r james a solitary balloonist Replacing the solitary horseman of the classic romances, might have been observed wending his way across Franconia in a northeasterly direction and at a height of about eleven thousand feet above the sea, and still spindling slowly. His head was craned over the side of the car, and he surveyed the country below with an expression of profound perplexity. Ever and again, his lips shaped inaudible words. Shooting at a chap, for example and, "'I'll come down right enough soon as I find out how.' Over the side of the basket the robe of the desert dervish was hanging, an appeal for consideration, an ineffectual white flag. He was now very distinctly aware that the world below him, so far from being the naive countryside of his early imaginings that day, sleepily unconscious of him, and capable of being amazed, and nearly reverential at his descent, was acutely irritated by his career and extremely impatient with the course he was taking but indeed it was not he who took that course but his masters the winds of heaven mysterious voices spoke to him in his ear jerking the words up to him by means of megaphones in a weird and startling manner in a great variety of languages official-looking persons had signalled to him by means of flag-flapping and arm-waving on the whole a guttural variant of english prevailed in the sentences that alighted upon the balloon chiefly he was told to come down or you will be shot oh very well said bert but ow then they shot a little wide of the car latterly he had been shot at six or seven times and once the bullet had gone by with a sound so persuasively like the tearing of silk that he had resigned himself to the prospect of a headlong fall but either they were aiming near him or they had missed and as yet nothing was torn but the air about him and his anxious soul he was now enjoying a respite from these attentions but he felt it was at best an interlude and he was doing what he could to appreciate his position. Incidentally, he was having some hot coffee and pie in an untidy, inadvertent manner, with an eye fluttering nervously over the side of the car. At first he had ascribed the growing interest in his career to his ill-conceived attempt to land in the bright little upland town, but now he was beginning to realize that the military rather than the civil arm was concerned about him. He was quite involuntarily playing that weird, mysterious part, the part of an international spy. He was seeing secret things. He had in fact crossed the designs of no less a power than the German Empire. He had blundered into the hot focus of Weltpolitik. He was drifting helplessly towards the great imperial secret, the immense aeronautic park, that had been established at a headlong pace in franconia to develop silently swiftly and on an immense scale the great discoveries of hundstedt and stossel and so to give germany before all other nations a fleet of airships the air power and the empire of the world later just before they shot him down altogether bert saw that great aerial passionate work warm lit in the evening light a great area of upland on which the airships lay like a herd of grazing monsters at their feed it was a vast busy space stretching away northward as far as he could see methodically cut up into numbered sheds gasometers squad encampments storage areas interlaced with the omnipresent monorail lines and altogether free from overhead wires or cables Everywhere was the white, black, and yellow of Imperial Germany. Everywhere the black eagles spread their wings. Even without these indications, the large vigorous neatness of everything would have marked it German. Vast multitudes of men went to and fro, many in white and drab fatigue uniforms, busy about the balloons, others drilling in sensible drab. Here and there a full uniform glittered the airships chiefly engaged his attention and he knew at once it was three of these he had seen on the previous night taking advantage of the cloud welkin to manoeuvre unobserved they were altogether fish-like for the great airships with which germany attacked new york in her last gigantic effort for world supremacy before humanity realised that world supremacy was a dream were the lineal descendants of the Zeppelin airship that flew over Lake Constance in 1906, and of the Le body navigables that made their memorable excursions over Paris in 1907 and 1908. These German airships were held together by rib-like skeletons of steel and aluminium, and a stout inelastic canvas outer skin, within which was an impervious rubber gas bag, cut up by transverse deceptiments into fifty to a hundred compartments these were all absolutely gas-tight and filled with hydrogen and the entire aerostat was kept at any level by means of a long internal ballonet of oiled and toughened silk canvas into which air could be forced and from which it could be pumped so the airship could be made either heavier or lighter than air and losses of weight through the consumption of fuel, the casting of bombs, and so forth, could be compensated by admitting air to sections of the general gas bag. Ultimately that made a highly explosive mixture, but in all these matters risks must be taken and guarded against. There was a steel axis to the whole affair, a central backbone which terminated in the engine and propeller, AND THE MEN AND MAGAZINES WERE FORWARD IN A SERIES OF CABINS UNDER THE EXPANDED HEAD-LIKE FOREPART. THE ENGINE, WHICH WAS OF THE EXTRAORDINARILY POWERFUL PORZHEIM TYPE, THAT SUPREME TRIUMPH OF GERMAN INVENTION, WAS WORKED BY WIRES FROM THIS FOREPART, WHICH WAS INDEED THE ONLY REALLY HABITABLE PART OF THE SHIP. IF ANYTHING WENT WRONG, THE ENGINEERS WENT AFT ALONG A ROPE-LADDER BENEATH THE FRAME. The tendency of the whole affair to roll was partly corrected by a horizontal lateral fin on either side, and steering was chiefly affected by two vertical fins, which normally lay back like gill flaps on either side of the head. It was indeed a most complete adaptation of the fish form to aerial conditions, the position of swimming bladder, eyes, and brain being, however, below instead of above. A striking and unfish-like feature was the apparatus for wireless telegraphy that dangled from the forward cabin, that is to say, under the chin of the fish. These monsters were capable of ninety miles an hour in a calm, so that they could face and make headway against nearly everything except the fiercest tornado. They varied in length from eight hundred to two thousand feet, and they had a carrying power of from seventy to two hundred tons. How many Germany possessed, history does not record. But Bert counted nearly eighty great bulks receding in perspective during his brief inspection. Such were the instruments on which she chiefly relied to sustain her in her repudiation of the Monroe Doctrine and her bold bid for a share in the empire of the New World. But not altogether did she rely on these. She had also a one-man bomb-throwing Drachenflieger of unknown value among the resources. But the Drachenflieger were away in the second great aeronautical park east of Hamburg, and Bert Smallways saw nothing of them in the bird's-eye view he took of the Franconian establishment before they shot him down very neatly. The bullet tore past him and made a sort of pop as it pierced his balloon, a pop that was followed by a rustling sigh and a steady downward movement and when in the confusion of the moment he dropped a bag of ballast the germans very politely but firmly overcame his scruples by shooting his balloon again twice End of chapter three parts four and five